A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been sponsored by AlephBeta.org. And if you don't know about AlephBeta's work, I encourage you to check it out, especially in the coming weeks. Their animated Torah videos are full of insightful and relevant content. We all want to find meaning during the Yom Tevim especially, and, when Aleph, and what Aleph Beta does so well is to look closely at the Torah that we're all so familiar with and make it even more meaningful and even more relevant in our lives today. So ch- check out alephbeta.org as you prepare for Rosh Hashanah. The great news is, is that for a limited time only, listeners of Jewish History Soundbites who subscribe to an annual Aleph Beta Premium Membership will get the gift of Koren's brand new release today, Flex Cover Tanakh. This Tanakh can be a huge contributor to your Torah studies with new English translations by Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory and Yibad Chaim Ritzvi Hirsch Weinreb and others. To get your free gift today, go to alphabeta.org. That's A-L-E-P-H-B-E-T-A dot org. And enter the coupon code... Free Tanakh, F-R-E-E-T-A-N-A-C-H, all in lowercase, and that's the code you use to get your free gift when you subscribe to an annual premium membership. That's the, the coupon code, and, um, and uh, you'll be able to get that. So hurry up, the offer ends soon. I personally vouch for Aleph Beta. It's very interesting, engaging informative and entertaining. There's really lots to gain. There's great content for all ages and backgrounds, and um, it's highly recommended. So today we're going to speak a little bit about the great crisis of the Hasidic movement and how that crisis was managed. And it's a fascinating story. And um, it's a lot of it I was, I was able to, you know, gain my interest in it was is primarily from a series of lectures I heard about this and other related topics by Professor Marcin Wojcinski, one of the premier researchers of the Hasidic movement worldwide today. And he enlightened me to the different nuances of this uh, episode, so it kind of inspired my involvement in the topic. Uh, Because what's so interesting is the dominance of the responses to the great controversy in contemporary Hasidic life. In other words, some of the most defining features of today's Hasidic life and society is actually a product of the great crisis and not earlier than that. 
So that's fascinating. In other words, uh, things that we assume to be part and parcel of the Hasidic movement from at least the Baal Shem Tov's time, if not earlier, being that it's such a traditionalist movement today, um, is in reality was a reaction to the Great Crisis and a product of the Great Crisis, which took place in the early part of the 20th century, last part of the 19th, but primarily in the interwar period. So that's what was in Explore. And in, in other words, it's a way to understand the Hasidic movement of today uh, in light of what happened at that time. Um, the crisis starts before, just chronologically, before we get to what the crisis was and how it was managed, how it was, uh, how, what were the responses to it by the Hasidic leadership at the time. Excuse me. Um, so it starts before World War One. It starts in the last decades of the 19th century and the, you know, the first decade and a half of the 20th century. But World War One kind of intensified it, and the wake, the results of the war, intensified it as a result. So the primary focus, although I will mention uh, um, manifestations of the crisis, even and responses to it from before World War One, even from the 19th century. But the primary focus is on interwar, uh, the interwar Hasidic world uh, worldwide, wherever they may be. The main, uh, the main issue um, is the demographic factor. That's the primary, I mean, that's what you look at. If we would plot the growth of the Hasidic movement in, in, in pure demographic terms, as far as adherence people, human beings, as members of the movement, of course, these are all estimates, because since there was no official membership uh, registration, so it's hard to know exact numbers. But if we would plot it on a graph from the 18th century, from the founding uh, from not founding, from its development as a movement in the last uh, decades of the 18th century until the early decades of the 19th century. So that's a period of uh, you know about 150 years, almost 150 years. We would see a steady rise, um, never, never, never plateaued and never went down um, in the last part of the 18th century and the early part of the 19th century, that rise was can be attributed to new adherents, meaning people who um, decided to join, to go ahead and, and join the movement, to join Hasidus, to join a Hasidic group, a dynasty, a follow a certain tzaddik. Um, that was the early years. And after that, it was natural growth. Um, Hasidic, you know, members of the Hasidic movement married, had families, and they grew. And they're always in a steady stream of growth, which would be a natural consequence of, of, you know, of a successful, healthy uh, movement. So what happens is, is that the, the numbers begin to fall, not just relatively, but in real numbers. Uh, in other words, the, that, that fictitious graph that I just mentioned would show a precipitous drop uh, in, in the real numbers, in actual numbers of the of the members of the Hasidic movement, again, in the estimated members, because the exact ones is impossible to come up with. And what happened? They were losing the youth. There were people leaving and, and not being less associated, less affiliated. And for the first time, literally for the first time in the history of the movement, instead of growing, it wasn't even stable, it was shrinking. And that is, I mean, if we would end, the, uh, end this episode right here, um, it would already be enough of a story, meaning a, a movement that was growing for 150 years and now is declining in numbers, that's a crisis. And that justifies the term crisis. Um, 
Now we want to figure out, first of all, what are the other factors and also what caused that uh, drop in the numbers. And that's what I want to elaborate on. And because uh, to focus on the crisis would be very negative, so I want to also focus on the second half would be to, um, would be to focus on uh, the reactions, how, how the crisis was managed and how it attempted to, attempted to resolve it. Um, so one of the major factors was urbanization. And this is the effect of World War I, but also in the decades leading up to World War I because of the Industrial Revolution and the rise of the factories in the big cities, the textile industry and other industries. And there's this leaving of the shtetl and, and moving to the big uh, urban city environment. And it in, very much intensifies with World War I. Um, and that, that, uh, that really uh, transforms the Hasidic movement, which, which I'm going to explain. So... We have, um, you know, during the, world, the war, it was safer in the big cities. Many, when they went into exile, went to the, fled to the big cities during the war uh, itself, and many simply stayed there. Also, even afterwards, there's a better economic base uh, for a Hasidic court in the city. That's where the people were. That's where the businessmen were. That's where the magnates uh, were. But on the other hand, it was cutting themselves off from its natural base, the metropolitanization of the Hasidic movement is uh, is is one of the major components of the the basis of the Hasidic crisis uh, in post World War One. Um, it leads to one of the reactions. Eventually, is going to be fundamentalism, which we're going to speak about in, because it's necessary to uh, to strengthen the identity in the urban environment. But I'm going to get to in the reactions to the Hasidic movement. But the and also because the urban environment there's an exposure to modern culture, which the Hasidic court and the average a member of the Hasidic court was not exposed to in their shtetl, but in the urban environment, all of a sudden, modern culture and modern society, uh, there was a, a there was this exposure. Um, so, the that th- that becomes one. What one it also does is it changes the relationship between the follower, the Hasid, and the tzaddik and the the rebbe, um, the 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 interaction. Between the Rebbe and his followers, it used to be that you you had a pilgrimage. You went uh, You went on a pilgrimage. You took off from work. You went by train, or you went in the earlier days by horse and buggy, or even walking. And now, in an urban environment, uh, it's in a big city. It's very different. Um, you you visit the big city for business, or you actually live there. And, uh, and, and, and you're also going to go to the Rebbe once you're there, because it's in the city, he's there. Or, or you're going to the Rebbe, but, uh, but you have lots of other things to see. You're not just going to see the Rebbe. When, when, it, was, when it was a pilgrimage to go to some Favarfenishtetl out there, then you're not exposed to anything else. You're not going to see anything else. But here you get the whole package, the whole culture. Uh, until then, there was a full immersion in the religious experience by the pilgrim, pilgrimage, the urban environment, you see the Rebbe on the street. Uh, you 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 go to the supermarket, and uh, the Rebbe or one of his gabayim or his wife is, is shopping the same uh, vegetables that you are. The urban environment completely transforms that interaction. Um, you'll see him in the park Shabbos afternoon, uh, going for a walk, uh, just like you. And that again, this 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 changes the the religious experience. Um, the the uh, it's also there's more competition because so many rebbes are moving to the big cities. There's not that many big cities, 
So that means your average big city has more than one Rebbe. Most often before that, when it was still in the shtetl, most often you would not have too many Rebbes in one shtetl. And when there were more than one Rebbe in the shtetl, it never ended well. But, um, but usually you didn't have such a scenario. You had one Rebbe in that shtetl. There was no competition. Usually there's no competition in that whole geographical area. And here you'll have several in the neighborhood. In one building on the Levki Street in Warsaw, there were three Rebbes, one on each floor. So if you went and got a bracha by one Rebbe, you'll say, you know what? Let's take out insurance just in case the first Rebbe's uh, blessing did not come to fruition. Let's go just in case and get one from the second bracha Rebbe and the third one once we're at it. We're here in the building anyway. We might as well knock off all three. Uh, so that, that completely uh, changes uh, you know, how a person is going to approaching the getting the blessing from a Rebbe. In the Warsaw suburb of Otvatsk, which was a resort area, a vacation area, there were eight tzaddikim who lived there full-time, and then several dozen who would come to vacation there, you know, a few times a year, especially in the summer. So you can essentially go Rebbe hopping. You'd go Davin Friday night by Majitz because there was good music, and then you'd go to the Lubavitcher Rebbe for, for Brangen, and then you'd go to the Amshinov Rebbe because Amshinov starts later, and you go, you basically hit up all of them. So there's diminished commitment. It started to become Hasid-ish and not Hasidic. Uh, it didn't define their essence, their identity anymore, but it was more of like a, you know, less of an affiliation for many. A half-Hasid, they used to call them very often a Kalta-Hasid, um, a decreasing level of affiliation. So the, the, uh, that, that, that became a, a reality of that urban environment. Um, you had all the Rebbes moving to Warsaw, to Ludge, to Krakow, Lvov, Sosnovich. A unique story was Vienna. Um, many, many, literally tens and tens of Rebbes of, the, of, the, um, of Galicia moved to the capital of Vienna during, the, during World War I. Many of them stayed, including basically all of the Rebbes of the Rizian dynasty. Um, and Vienna's Western Europe... Uh, Hasidus in its 150 years history had never penetrated Western Europe, pretty much, with rare exceptions. And now, literally overnight, because it wasn't just Rebbes who came there as refugees, it was their followers as well, They it becomes probably the greatest Hasidic center in the world after Warsaw. Uh, the tens of Rebbes, Shtiblach, tens of thousands of Hasidim, overnight, overnight, this modern center of European culture with its yucky background and assimilated background and reform background of the Jewish community and and the and, and even the religious community was more Eberland, the students of the Chassam Seifer. All of a sudden, there's this influx, this massive influx. Now, all these, and of course in other cities too, in Budapest, Cluj, in other cities as well, all these major urban centers become centers of the Hasidic movement. Now, this sets the stage for post-war. That's why this is so important. Because all those descriptions I read, uh, read uh, that I related just now is, is pretty much describes the Hasidic world of today, where I would guess 90, upwards of 90%, maybe even more than 90% of Hasidic Rebbes and Hasidic population live in one of three urban environments, uh, Yerushalayim, B'nai Brak, and New York City, uh, specifically Brooklyn. So, so you have that exact scenario, what was created in Warsaw and in Vienna in the interwar period, that's, that defines the Hasidic movement today. Um, and, uh, and therefore, what, what sets the stage for it is, is that 
is that is that uh, reality. Uh, another effect of the urbanization of the on the Hasidic experience is the, the decline of the Derech Hamalchus, the royal courts of the Rishon dynasty, Chernobyl dynasty. Um, you have this amazing description of the Yiddish writer Anski. Uh, he describes the town of Husyatin, which was one of the major branches, of the dynasties of the Rishon Rishon Sadiger dynasty. Husyatin, which had this incredible court and mansion and, and, and buildings and everything it was beautiful. There's pictures of it and descriptions of it and testimonies of it, and it's completely abandoned. He's he's there. He visits there at the end of World War One, and it's like uh, it reads almost like an echo. It reads like you know this desolate and 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 you know dust is gathering and empty, big, huge, magnificent buildings just empty of all its inhabitants and. Unbelievable description of the clays, of the Rebbe's house, of everything. Completely empty. And where was the Husyatna Rebbe, along with all the other Rishon Rebbes in Vienna? And Vienna, you can't have that. You, it's just, it's an urban environment. You can have a big apartment, and if you really, really have a lot of money, maybe you can buy a townhouse, but you can't have that court, the physical court that the regal courts had uh, before the war. So, the, and then there's the actual physical disruption of World War One and the havoc which it caused, and how it devastated Jewish life economically, socially, religiously, spiritually, uh, politically. It redefined the map and the new borders and and the infrastructure and, and literally a million different ways that were the loss of life and pogroms and and especially the Russian Revolution. You have to think about that. The heartland of the Hasidic movement. Uh, and where and its birthplace is now behind the Iron Curtain. So major dynasties like Chabad are in the Soviet Union, in the South, in Ukraine, all the Chernobyl, the various different Chernobyl dynasties, Breslov also, and, and a few others, smaller ones, are now all behind the Iron Curtain. Some of them go underground, some of them escape into Poland or immigrate to the United States or, or Palestine, other parts of Europe. And some of them attempt to keep the light of Hasidus alive in behind the Iron Curtain. Some of the holiest holy sites, famous holy sites of the early Hasidic movement, such as Uman, where everyone's going next week for Rosh Hashanah, and uh, and Mezhibish, the place of the Baal Shem Tev, they're gone. They're behind the Iron Curtain. No one can access them. So that again, that adds to the crisis. That a huge portion of what I mean, Russia, Russia, Ukraine, Volin, Rysin, all these major components of what was the Hasidic movement and and where its birthplace was and where it flourished for so many years was now gone in communist Russia. Um, another component of the great crisis is uh, is immigration. Um, there are Hasidim, many rank-and-file Hasidim who are migrating because of World War I, because of the Russian Revolution, because of the Bolsheviks, because of the pogroms and the civil war and, 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 and what was going on in the Ukraine. Um, so where are they migrating to? To the United States, as long as immigration was allowed, to Western Europe, to other parts of the world, and now they're far from Eastern Europe, they're far from their Rebbes, they're going to become less affiliated, and their descendants even less affiliated. And that's a crisis that's facing traditional Judaism in general. And a lot of the things that I'm going to speak about are are reactions, and, and, and they're really you know, somewhat relevant across the board to traditional Judaism at this time, but it specifically is even more about the uh, Hasidic movement um, and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and therefore immigration. So if we would summarize, we have the demographic drop, we have urbanization, we have the, the, the 
everything that comes with the organization, the difference, the different the effect on the Hasidic experience and the interaction between the Rebbe and the, his follower, his followers, the decline of the royal courts, the um, the havoc wreaked by uh, World War One, the Russian Revolution, and Hasidus behind the Iron Curtain, and immigration. So now we need to get to the responses. What are the responses? And there are many, and there's different great courageous leadership in the Hasidic movement. To, they were cognizant. They saw what was going on, and they stand up to the plate. They don't give up. They don't throw their hands up in despair, and they actually get up and try to solve it. And some with very creative solutions, some with courageous solutions, with a lot of initiative, different projects. The main one and the primary vehicle was education, um, opening yeshivas. Um, and way before World War One, almost two decades earlier, the Lubavitch led uh, led the pack. Chabad led the pack by uh, opening Taim Chit Mimim in 1897. It was actually this time of year. And opened on, uh, the Rebbe Rashab announced it on Chai El, uh, the uh, birthday of the Baal Shem Tev and the Baal Atanya, the Alter Rebbe. And, they, and, then he, uh, and then the official time that it started was on Simchas Taira. That's where it gets its name from, Taimich Tamimim, which we say in the Hashanahs and, and the Hakafas, whatever it is. Um, so so Taimich Tamimim was a response to the Great Crisis, a very early response. Um, and they're the pioneers. But later on, Radomsk, the Radomsk Rebbe opens the Kesser Torah Network, which later has thousands of its students over tens of branches across Poland. The Kedusha scene of Babov has, he starts the first yeshiva, basically in Galicia, but for sure in Babov, for sure in the Tsan's dynasty, which had never had yeshivas up until that point. And uh, in fact, his father, Rabbi Shleim of Babov, started it, and then the Kedusha scene just expanded it, and... Um, and, and it comes the Eitz Chaim network, which is also across Galicia. The most famous Hasidic yeshiva of, the, of interwar Poland becomes, of course, Yeshiva's Chachmei Lublin of Rameir Shapiro. The Ger Rebbe has the Masifta of Warsaw, which is a very pioneering endeavor to have a premier yeshiva in Warsaw for the Ger Hasidim, for other Hasidim, uh, run by some of the uh, biggest, uh, greatest Torah scholars in Poland affiliated with Ger. Uh, and um, and and that it would be recognized by the Polish government, and it would have general studies in the yeshiva. Uh, all these were very courageous and and forward thinking of the Ger Rebbe at that time. Uh, perhaps uh, the most interesting story is the Das Moshe Yeshiva of the Piatetsna Rebbe, Reb Kleinim is Kalmus Shapiro, um, who's he was a, he was a master educator. Of course, everyone's familiar with uh, his Chayvus Talmidim, his book that he authored on educational theory, which was very progressive for the time. But um, but his yeshiva, which is named after his father-in-law, the, the Kajnitzer Rebbe, but he becomes a Rosh Yeshiva, and he gives a daily shir. He does not return to Piyatetzna after the after World War One. He stays in Warsaw. He only goes back on special occasions and for the Yom Tovim for the for the holidays, like around this time of year. He was in Piyatetzna, but the rest of the year he's in Warsaw. He has a yeshiva. He's 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 a he's a, a teacher to his students, and uh, and 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 that's the. That's the role that he takes upon for himself, and, and he has hundreds, hundreds of students. I even heard from Polish uh, survivors who uh, heard their testimonies, in other words, and personally hear from them, that, um, that, that they, they came from Hasidic homes in the Warsaw area, which were from different dynasties, but they joined the Das Maishi Yeshiva as young students because of who the Piyatessin Rabbi was, and because of that, they were drawn to him and became Piyatessin Hasidim. By the way, the same thing happened in Radomsk. I know of stories where people came from Babov and other dynasties, but they went to study in the Kesertari Yeshiva, and ultimately they would become Radomsky Hasidim. So the Yeshiva, as an institution, would become uh, um, you know, a, a way to strengthen the court. 
uh, Assad, uh, you know, in, in, in Hungary also, you had the great issue, which was part of the Hungarian yeshiva movement, which was already a product of the 19th century, so it wasn't so much a product of the great crisis in Hungary and Transylvania, but it intensified as a result of the great crisis. A side note I want to mention is, is after the war, um, the Belzer Rebbe, the Rebaran, Rebaral of Belz, uh, Rebaran Rukeach of Belz, who was able to escape and make it to Palestine towards the end of the war, one of the first things he does is he establishes a yeshiva in, 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 in Yerushalayim, on Agrippa Street, which still exists. And Bells never had a yeshiva. They had a base medrash. They had what were called yeshvim, people who hung around the court, kind of, and studied Torah uh, um, um, full-time. But they never had an official, formal institution for the youth uh, as a yeshiva. And they were very anti it, actually. But the Belzer Rebbe realized that after the war, the only way to rebuild would be to start with the nucleus, with education, with the youth, and that would be through the institution of the yeshiva. So, so the great crisis kind of continues even after the war, and, and leads to the, the reactions to that uh, leads to the uh, the rebuilding of the Hasidic movement afterwards. Also, of course, even more revolutionary was the how it spilled over into girls' education. We spoke about boys' education until now, but girls' education, Beis Yaakov, uh, Sarah Shanir, which I spoke about in the series on on. Uh, called it Sisters of the Revolution, the development of uh, girls' education in traditional Orthodox society, but uh, how Hasidic parents send their girls to Beis Yaakov, and not only Beis Yaakov, Chavatzeles, and in Hungary there were other schools and uh, which were modeled on Beis Yaakov, just they didn't want to say have anything to do with Beis Yaakov because it was officially part of a good as Yisrael. But, uh, but the idea was that uh, that it was the same idea as Beis Yaakov. And... Um, and in 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 and, 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 and Hasidic parents would send there. And then there are Rebbe's like the Ger Rebbe who actually went out publicly and supported it and you know, through funding and, and institutionalized it and and uh, and, and made it uh, basically part of uh, the uh good Israel, part of the part of acceptance among the Hasidic uh, uh, movement. Speaking of girls, one of the responses to the crisis is the increasing involvement of women as full fledged members of the Hasidic movement. And this is an age-old question that, that researchers debate until today. Are women Hasidim or not? Or are they just wives and daughters, mothers and sisters of Hasidim? Um, and that's, that's a big question. Uh, so during the Great Crisis, women were, are increasingly seen as playing a role in transmitting Hasidic traditions, carrying out responsibilities, and being seen more and more as part of the Hasidic uh, movement. The topic of women and Hasidism is a huge topic. I don't want to get into it too much now. It's and it's not directly related. I just mentioned it as how this is a time where women, mothers, especially, are seen as 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 as, as tools, as vehicles that can be uh, utilized in 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 saving in in, in closing the ranks of the uh, of the Hasidic movement during the crisis. Another aspect, another reaction is politics. Politics was always part of the Hasidic movement. Politics was always part of any Jewish community, obviously. But here it becomes institutionalized. The Agudis Yisrael and the complete politicization of Polish Jewry, religious, secular, and even non-Jewish Poland. Um, you have to understand that, and that's a topic for another time, and I think I've touched on it in the past. In interwar Poland in the Second Polish Republic, there's the complete politicization of society. It's that the political party is not just a place where you vote in elections and send representatives to the Polish same to the Polish parliament or to the in the municipal municipal elections the area. It's an all-encompassing endeavor. It's 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 it defines your youth groups. It defines your newspapers. It's almost like Israel today. 
It, it defines every facet of your, what, 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 what you do, where you work, what, what type of job you have, what, uh, what cultural activities you do, which everything, what summer camp you go to. It's all politics. It all is completely affiliated. So the religious community, especially the Hasidic community, come very late to this. The uh, Zionist movement and the Bund had been established already much earlier. But they're very present in every facet of life. And some of it is actually surprising that there would be a Hasidic uh, political presence in all these uh, uh, things. Um, but of course, uh, in, in Poland, it's primarily members of the Hasidic movement. Um, so politics becomes a way of dealing with the... gives them power. It gives, it gives power, it gives structure, it gives institutions funding, and therefore it's a way of dealing with the crisis, and it's a way of affiliation. Uh, spiritual renewal is another response to the crisis. And uh, believe it or not, Breslov comes to Poland. Uh, first of all, they were locked out of the Soviet Union, so there were Breslov or Hasidim who ended up in Poland after World War I. But more than that, there's this renewed interest in, neo in, in a way of neo-Hasidism. It's like the, 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 one of the, you know, the, first, the first neo-Hasidic movement. Today, I think we're in the midst of the third wave. Um, and... Uh, you, know, you need a booster shot in the third wave, but uh, the the uh, but th this was the first wave of uh, of the uh, of the uh, of, of, of neo Hasidism. Um, you have people like Hild Zeitlin. Um, you have it in Germany too. Martin Buber uh, and other people are interested in, in spiritual renewal and Hasidic renewal and the roots of the Hasidic movement. Um, but it's not limited to Breslov. I think the main. Um, face of this spiritual renewal is who I mentioned earlier, the Piazetsna Rebbe, who claimed him as Kabbalah Shapiro, at least in Poland, um, where he is almost uh, leading a movement of where he's this young, brilliant, extremely charismatic uh, Rebbe, who is more of a Rosh Hashiva, like I mentioned, and his message is relevant, is speaking to the youth, is, is doing what almost no one else in the Hasidic movement is doing. If I want to make it easier and more accessible and relevant to to understand today, if we look around in contemporary Hasidic society, there's this phenomenon of the mashpiyim, of people who are who are not affiliated officially with any specific dynasty, people like uh, Rav Meilach Biederman or um, Rav Tzvi Meyer or Rav Meyer Morgenstern, and you know, um, Rav Frank, uh, you know, just these type of people who are um, who are mashpiyim, they're influenced, they're, they're kind of a throwback to the, the Baal Shem Tov type of Hasidus there. You know, teaching Avodah Hashem, teaching, preaching a, a way of being a better uh, Jew in the early Hasidus, before it became uh, institutionalized and, and, and dynastical. So that's, that's, that's what happens uh, at the time, to, uh, on a much more limited level, limited extent in, in Poland uh, pre-war. Even in Hungary, you have uh, Rabbi Aral Aroth in Satra, who later becomes institutionalized by having told the Tsar and told the Tsar Mitzchak. But when he starts, he starts as a Mashpia. And he and the Satmarov do not get along as a result, uh, ironically. Today they're considered in the same camp, uh, ideologically and politically, but uh, they don't get along. And uh, because he's a mashpia, he's outside of the institutionalized Hasidus, and the Satmarov is the title-bound dynasty, and obviously they're, 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 they're like, uh, you know, they're the prime institutionalized uh, establishment, we'll call them Hasidus in Hungary. So, so you have that in Hungary as well. Um, another response to the great crisis is media, uh, newspapers, Gerab, uh, others, they promote uh, religious newspapers, not specifically Hasidic newspapers, 
uh, but the religious newspaper, the media, using utilizing that to get the message out and to and to keep up with the modern technology. Um, perhaps the most recognizable feature of the reactions, the response to the great crisis, is the move towards fundamentalism. Uh, ironically, one of the trends that led to the fundamentalism of the Hasidic movement was the opening of yeshivas, which I mentioned earlier, because the Hasidic yeshivas were different than the Lithuanian yeshivas, which, which were primarily for Talmudic scholarship. Uh, these were also, for the, in the Hasidic movement, they were not only for Talmudic scholarship, they were also these social male fraternities, which were separate from both the home, the Hasidic home, which had pro- created the atmosphere of the Hasidic movement until this point, and even the court. It's separate from the court itself, from the Hasidic court, which was also the prime, uh, you know, uh, where, where, where the atmosphere of Hasidus had been until this point. Um, so it, in a certain way, breeded fundamentalism, new social norms. Um, when the boy returns home, his home, he discovers that his home is not holy enough, uh, and he becomes closer to the Rebbe than his father is. It creates generational rift in, in family. But possibly one of the most recognizable responses to the Great Crisis, which is evident in the Hasidic movement until today, is this move towards uh, fundamentalism. Has I think today it has bad connotations. I don't want to, you know, offend anyone. Uh, definitely, I don't mean that in any in, in, in that way. We'll call it instead. We'll use a different term to make it more neutral. Uh, traditionalism. Uh, traditionalism in the movement begins in Galicia in the mid 19th century. It's not brand new in the 20th century. Yeah, people like the Bnei Sascher and especially in Galicia, the Rechaim, and others, a movement towards traditionalism. But it was only during the Great Crisis that it comes to be a defining feature of Hasidus itself, and came to be the one of the most recognizable features across the entire movement until today. Um, the best illustration of that is Hasidic dress, uh, which becomes, we always wonder where Hasidic dress comes from. So, you know, it comes earlier, but it really becomes uh, defining of what a member of the Hasidic movement is, which today is like the way to describe someone. He dresses in a Hasidic way, so he must be a Hasid. He does not dress in a Hasidic way, so he can't be a Hasid, because of course the Baal Shem Tov dressed this way. So Jewish dress essentially becomes Hasidic dress. This was you know, common Jewish dress in the 19th century. Uh, in the late 19th century, because of the crisis of modernity and the need for distinctiveness, uh, so that, that creates the need to require the Hasidic dress. It strengthens uh, means of a collective identity during the time of crisis. The, it tries to project a certain identity to the outside. Um, it's, it's, uh, it, 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 it emerges as, as a way of stigmatization to get rid of free riders, to close ranks, to establish barriers of embarrassment that anyone who crosses a red line now is out of the movement and anyone who does not cross that line is inside the movement. Um, it creates outside and inside and each dynasty has their knech, has their way of distinctive dress even within the Hasidic movement. Um, to strengthen the ranks, if you remove the dress, then you're outside. Um, and of course it also has related to what I said earlier about urbanization. Because if you're in the shtetl, you don't need that distinction. But in the city, this is right away. You see someone walking down the block, you know if he's a chassid or not. It preserves it as an ur- urban in an urban setting. Uh, this is uh, this is um, the uh, you know, also there's a thing of, of expense 
until until the twentieth century to have mass dress for the entire movement probably would have been too expensive to you know create uniform dress codes. Uh, it's also the other factor, which in the twentieth century with mass production of textile would would allow it. So it was possible for it to happen. We always overlook those factors as well that the the uh, text the technology of the textile. Uh, uh, revolution might have played a role in in, in uniform Hasidic dress uh, as well. Uh, this only intensified, the trend towards specific Hasidic dress only intensified after the war when the world of Eastern Europe was decimated and vanished, so everything associated with it became holy, the dress, the language of Yiddish, even the way form of pronunciation of Yiddish, when Galicia and Hungarian Yiddish came to be known as a Hasidic Havara, and people you know, actually would go out of their way to to, to pray in a certain way, thinking that it's Hasidic, when in fact it's just uh, a, fact, a feature of how people, people spoke in Hungary. And that becomes holy. It becomes important to pray in that fashion. Place names, names of towns in Eastern Europe become holy. And these are all factors in the rebuilding of, Hasid, of the Hasidic movement after the war. So which courts flourished during the Great Crisis and which ones declined? The courts that adopted fundamentalism or traditionalism, uh, you know, some like some of the Hungarian dynasties, others, or the courts that established institutions, media, politics, Gera, Domsk, like I mentioned, those flourished. Those that did not, you know, respond in, 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 in kind, such as the dynasties of Rizhin Sadi Ger, with the exception of Chartkov. Chartkov was part of, you know, very active in Agudis Israel and other things, so they actually did flourish during... Uh, during uh, the interwar period, but most of the other ones did not. Some of the Galician courts, Jikov and Zidichev and others, they were less, they became over time much less influential than they had been uh, as a result of this crisis. So this was Yehuda Geber with uh, Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.